Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. Um, what are we talking about today? We're going to talk about the normal distribution and the central limit theorem. I have heard of the first. I have not heard of the second. You are listening to Linear Digressions. So normal distribution is your, uh, I guess, your normal distribution that you see. <laughs> yeah, is that why they call it a normal distribution? Oh, I don't actually know where that part of the nomenclature comes from. And I actually very often will call it a Gaussian. This is apparently what physicists call this distribution, whereas statisticians and economists and whatnot call it the normal distribution. So Gaussian, normal, all the same. But it's one that we've kind of mentioned offhandedly on this podcast a whole bunch of times, I think. Um, so it's, a, in terms of shape, it's a bell curve. Uh, so high in the middle and low on the ends. It's got a functional form that you could look up in a book, but it's kind of a exponential type uh, formula that it has e to the, well, to within a normalization factor, it's e to the negative x minus mu squared over two sigma squared. So mu it's got, squared? <laughs> yeah, it's got a couple of, it's got two big parameters that you have to that you have to be thinking about. One is mu. That's the mean of the Gaussian. Uh, so it's like the high mu point. Mu is causing me trouble right now. I'm trying to keep my cat from walking on my keyboard and stopping my recording. It's just funny. Okay, so mu is what? Wait, meow. what is mu? Meow. What is um, what is meow? Mu. <laughs> so what, mu. What is, <laughs> uh, so, gosh, I'm gonna really struggle saying mu for the next couple minutes. Okay, mu, Greek letter. And that is the mean of your Gaussian distribution, your normal distribution. So that's the middle point of the curve where it's the highest. Oh, all right. Mm -hmm. so, so, but fundamentally, mu in other contexts is just a Greek letter, right? Oh, yeah. Okay, got yeah. it. It's just a parameter here. Um, yes, thank you for keeping me honest. And then the second variable or the second parameter of a normal distribution is sigma, or sometimes it's called sigma squared. I mean, they're, it's not the same thing because one is the square root of the other. Um, but sigma squared is called the variance, and sigma is called the standard deviation. And this is basically how wide the, how wide the distribution is. Oh, okay. So mu is kind of like its position, and then sigma is, is its wideness. Yep. Yeah. Got and it. so with just those two parameters, that can fully define your your normal distribution. And it's got some kind of nice standard properties. Uh, so very often, this is a, a distribution that comes up a lot in statistics for reasons that we will get to in just a minute here. Um, but because it comes up so often in statistics, there's a couple kind of handy rules of thumb that eventually you usually kind of memorize <laughs> about how much of the probability distribution falls within one or two or three standard deviations of the mean. Isn't that so, 95, 99, and is, is, am I on the right track? Uh, not exactly. Oh, okay. uh, so within one standard deviation to the left and to the right of the mean, you'll have about 68% of your mm. sample. Two standard deviations is about 95%. Um, so that's a pretty standard number that you'll see in a lot of uh, a lot of like research literature if you want to claim some kind of statistical significance of a test result it's typically something like 
within two standard deviations of the mean, either above or below. Uh, by the time you get three sigma out, you have 99.7% of the distribution, roughly. So it's a pretty light-tailed distribution. Uh, you can get, by the time you're out, more than three sigma or so. Uh, there's not a whole lot of probability of those kinds of events happening. Got it. Is um, Okay, here's a random question for you. In physics, when they say five sigma, is that... Is that related? Oh, yeah, it is. Paying attention. Um, <laughs> I, I am, yes. Yeah, so a lot of times in physics, a little bit of context here, or to, to unpack this for folks who haven't been listening to this podcast for long enough to remember that. So I used to work in physics a lot. And so one of the things that you're trying to do in physics is quantify. There's lots of different things that you're searching for when you're doing a physics analysis. And typically, a very typical thing is that you're looking in some distribution. And if there is, there's a distribution that you can explain with background effects, basically, that are uh, right. not So you're basically saying, like, it's, it is possible that what I'm seeing is not what I'm actually searching for, but it's just coincidence. It's background effects. Well, yeah, so the background has a certain shape typically, and then the signal usually has a slightly different shape. And so what you're looking mm. for is something that doesn't look like background. But the thing about background or any kind of statistical sample that you're taking is that it's prone to just fluctuations. And so those fluctuations, it's very common to have small fluctuations. It's not uncommon to have kind of medium-sized fluctuations. But as you get bigger and bigger fluctuations, those become less and less likely to be generated just by background processes. And so exactly how quickly is the probability decreasing that something was a was a background effect? Uh, that's described by a Gaussian or by, by a, a normal. Mm -hmm. And so when we say a five sigma result, that means it's at least five standard deviations away from something that we think is explained by background effects. And that corresponds to something like roughly one in 1.4 million or something, I want to say. Mm -hmm. So yeah. let's just say one in a million for for references sakes, although it's, that's not quite exactly it. So, you know, roughly a one in a million effect that something like this could arise because of because of background processes, which doesn't necessarily mean that you've found a new particle. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but mm. it helps you, you know, it's kind of like a handy heuristic rule of thumb that that's the level of certainty that physicists are typically looking for before they claim discovery of a new particle. Interesting. Yeah. That, that's always interesting to me to see how, like, I mean, there are some, there are some, uh, words like in this case, mu could be used to describe different things in different fields or different contexts. Um, like me and, and, and my cat, I guess that's, that's kind of a joke. I'm not serious, but, uh, <laughs> I lost you for a second there, but all right, keep yeah. going. <laughs> and, uh, but, but then you have things like the normal distribution, which are just widespread. And whenever you're talking about a normal distribution or, or using terms like Sigma, you're often, you're, you're actually talking about the same thing. Well, and that actually isn't a coincidence. So you know, one of the things that's kind of interesting about the normal distribution is I was having a little bit of trouble, honestly, trying to think of 
everyday processes that you and I are really familiar with that are generated by um, this sort of Gaussian probability distribution or that are distributed with respect to this Gaussian probability distribution. So if you were to take, I don't know, what's this, what's a simple example, uh, income, the income of everyone in the United States, uh, that's obviously not, not Gaussian, not Gaussian. <laughs> you know, many more people at lower levels and then there's a very long tail. Um, so that's governed by a different distribution. Um, a, uh, probably a Pareto distribution. If you're into that kind of thing, um, there's a bunch of, <laughs> yeah. there's a, there's a bunch of kind of bell curve shaped distributions that get close to Gaussian shaped or that get close to normal shape, especially in sort of limiting cases. So if you're familiar with a binomial distribution, which is the kind of distribution that's, that governs like the statistics of coin flips, if you were to do an exercise where you were to flip a coin a hundred times, and then you were to repeat that a thousand times, you would start to get, that would be a binomial distribution. Um, is the kind of ratio of heads to tails. And that's going to start to look like a Gaussian in uh, high enough statistics. So you'll get, you know, kind of a bell curve. Does it approach a Gaussian? Or is it uh, similarly shaped, but actually different? So yeah, a lot of these distributions, like a binomial, a Poisson distribution, we talked about those a few weeks ago, a student's T distribution, that's a a, it's kind of like a Gaussian, but with fatter tails. Um, all of these asymptotically approach uh, the Gaussian distribution in high enough limits. So they look kind of similar to them in just everyday life sometimes. And then they you can kind of s- mathematically prove that they all converge on the same distribution in oh, interesting. Uh, asymptotically. So they are actually the same, even though in practice... Uh, with lower limits, they are they kind of behave a little differently. Yeah, I mean they're not the same exactly. My main point though is that mm. you know even when you find distributions that might be that look like they're bell curve shapes, if you once you look under the covers a little bit, they're not proper Gaussians. They're mm. these other you know it's they're more likely to be like one of these other distributions. So a reasonable question that you might be asking right now is well if there aren't if there aren't actually a lot of really common processes that are normally distributed, then like, why is it such a big deal? Yeah. Uh, and that brings us to the second part of the episode here, which is talking about the central limit theorem, which is a really important part of, uh, it's kind of one of the theoretical foundations of statistics. It's like the connection between probability and statistics. So like, that's kind of cool. So we should talk about that. This is cool. I never took stats. Yep. So stats. Yeah. (laughs) Statistics. What is statistics? And that's, I I don't mean that facetiously. There are different definitions of statistics that you could come up with. But for the purposes of this conversation, Mm -hmm. we'll say that statistics is um, basically the practice of uh, collecting numerical data about some quantity of interest, and then analyzing that, especially if what you're trying to do is analyze that data and use that sampling of the data to infer something about a larger population. So when you're doing a statistical analysis, you have the data set that you're analyzing, but 
you're not just making a measurement on that data set, but instead you're using it to make some kind of conclusion about mm. something that's bigger than just the data set that you have. Right. That makes sense. So you have this representative sample, you need to extrapolate any conclusions that you draw from that sample to a larger, more general population. Statistics is the practice of doing so. And there's a bunch of different forms that this can take, but one of the ones that's close to my heart is the idea of hypothesis testing. So this is one of the biggest things that you're doing when you're using statistics to do science is you're testing a hypothesis. And this introduces this idea of a null hypothesis and then some kind of not null hypothesis. So I'll use the physics example here for a second. So our null hypothesis in physics is usually that there is no particle there, that the distributions that we see in our data are generated only by background processes. That's what we call our null. Okay. We do statistical analysis of those distributions to see if the data is consistent with that null hypothesis, and if not, how big is the is the split between the two? And in particular, there's you know kind of two hypotheses that we're implicitly testing against each other. There's the there's nothing there hypothesis, and then the thing that we're more interested in is the maybe there's something there hypothesis. Mm, interesting. So so it's almost like rather than saying okay, let's try and perform tests to see if this thing is there, you're almost approaching it from the opposite direction. Is, is that like you're kind of saying instead of chasing a particular result, you're checking to see whether you're deviating from there not being a result? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's just generally good science is that you, you shouldn't be out there chasing results because it's really easy to kind of craft something when there's nothing there but instead you should be kind of examining multiple different scenarios or hypotheses and you're comparing each of them to the data that you've actually collected you're saying which of these scenarios or hypotheses is more supported by the data that we have and so very often it's kind of inconclusive but in cases where there's strong enough evidence statistics helps you understand when there's strong enough evidence, then you can do something like reject the null hypothesis. And then you have an interesting, interesting, I don't like saying that it's an interesting result because that makes it sound like null results aren't interesting. And they're actually really important, I think, and Mm. are worth talking about. But anyway, novel result. Yes. You have something that falls outside of your null hypothesis. So Um, But the question is then, you have this data sample that you've collected, like what's the guarantee that that the path from that data sample that you've collected, that the path from that to some kind of generalized result that applies to everybody or to, you know, the, the entire population, who's to say that that is a clear path? So the question you're asking is, if you have a a data set that you want to that you want to draw conclusions from that can be generalized to a to the larger population or to the larger, um, I guess, the world. The question is, how do you know that you can do that? Yeah. So here, let me just state the central limit theorem in words, and then we'll kind of tie it back to this grandiose statistics thing. <laughs> so the central limit theorem, in its simplest form, says that 
Imagine that you are in a scenario where you are collecting data about some process that you're interested in. Let's use an example. I was thinking a little bit about examples that we could have here. Let's take the example of you're analyzing data about housing prices in Boston. And I picked this example because there's a very famous data set of Boston housing information. So it's the price of a house and then a bunch of different characteristics of it. And it's a thing that you analyze in you know your first data science class as a regression problem. So you are trying to draw some kind of interesting conclusion about housing prices in Boston. Now, what the central limit theorem would say in this particular case, just to use this example, central Mm -hmm. limit theorem says that imagine you are taking repeated samples from that distribution of housing prices, and you are taking the means of those samples. So you collect sample data about 100 houses in Boston. You take the mean price that you measure over those 100 samples. Okay, You take the mean and you write that down as a data point. Right. Now you take 100 more samples, you take the mean, that's your second data point. Okay, you take, so you're almost like taking your large data set and making it smaller via averaging. Uh, so you're, yeah, you're not necessarily doing this to make it smaller, but what you're doing is, yes, you're taking repeated samples and then mm. calculating the, the mean of those samples. And what the central limit theorem says is that it doesn't matter what the underlying distribution of housing prices is. It can be the craziest distribution you've ever seen, but those sample means, as you start to you know collect data for that distribution, those sample means will converge upon the true mean of the entire population of the houses in Boston. And moreover, the variance of that distribution of means is related to the true variance in a, a fairly straightforward way. It's like the same variance, but divided by a, a number that scales up and down with uh, the number of samples that you've taken. So um, huh. so you can extra- extrapolate you know, kind of pretty easily from the, the variance that you measure in your samples to the true variance. That's interesting. So the, the first part, so you said two things. One is that did we actually, so the first part, let me just repeat this to make sure I have it right. The first part you said is if you take those means of those hundred houses at a time or 50 houses or whatever at a time, and then you plot those, then the that the center of that distribution of those points will be, will converge upon as you get larger, um, number of data points this the center of the distribution of the actual data set or the the representative uh the the thing that it's trying to represent yeah so i think it sounds like i i might have like left out or perhaps not stressed strongly enough the whole point of this which is that Mm. so that that distribution of the means that is a gaussian that is a normal distribution that is a normal distribution it has a mean that approaches the true mean like with infinite mm. well infinite samples doesn't make a ton of sense here but the <laughs> you know it, yeah. as you collect more data it will get closer and closer to the true mean and moreover the the variance is has this well defined relationship with the true variance so that that distribution of means is normally distributed and that's the reason this matters so much mm, okay. um is that even though 
you might know nothing about the underlying dynamics of how Boston housing prices work, because there's no guarantee that those are normally distributed or that those have any kind of well-defined distribution that you could parametrize in some well-defined way. Once you do this sampling and averaging process, then the data that you get about them does become you know, much more, it becomes normally distributed, it becomes much more well-behaved. And then what you can do is you can analyze that data set and you draw conclusions about the thing that you actually care about in this, using the good statistics and you use your, uh, your, your p-values or your, how many sigma ways. That's so crazy. So it's really weird. This is like, yeah. So the the reason that you want to turn this into a normal distribution is because normal distributions are more well behaved and so you can do certain things more reliably or more easily that you wouldn't necessarily be able to do with your original data set is that sound right to you yeah i don't really think of it as that you want to turn your data into a normal i mean i guess you could think about it that way but it's kind of like just this thing that's true about probability and statistics that once you put your data through this averaging process, like the thing that you get out is a Gaussian, that it is a normal distribution, that it just, that's what happens. Um, And so then what a lot of statisticians and scientists do is they take advantage of that, that nice probabilistic fact, and they use it as kind of the the underpinnings of the analysis that they do. So to close the loop here to like tell you an example of how you might do this for Boston housing, you know, let's say you're a scientist and you're trying to, you're running a regression of housing prices. And one of the variables that you have in your data set is whether a house has, is on the riverfront for the Charles River. Like maybe that makes it more expensive. Maybe that makes it less expensive. I honestly don't know, but let's say that's interesting to you for some scientific reason. And so a very simple thing that you might do, you know, even simpler than running a regression is you would take the data that you have for your houses that are along the riverfront, take your houses that are not along the riverfront. You might have to be careful about conditioning for other variables so that they're kind of comparable samples, the one thing that really makes them different is whether that, whether they're on the riverfront or not. So, you know, there aren't other variables like crime or house size that could affect your outcome. So you have two samples and you take, you do that kind of sampling mean operation on your houses that are on along the, not along the river, let's say. You come up with some kind of mean housing price for the non-river houses. And you know, because you've taken a bunch of data, that that's getting close to the true mean of all the houses in Boston that are not along the river. And then you start to take data points that are along the river and you compare them to that mean. So are they falling in, you know, within one or two standard deviations of the mean? Well, then chances are the river, you're not getting any statistical support for the idea that the river is making an impact on the house price. But if you see that they're falling more than a few standard deviations away from the mean of that right. other distribution, then you're starting to gather statistical evidence that the fact that they're riverfront 
has an impact on how expensive they are. So now you've just, and you've, it's not just a heuristic, like, oh, it looks like they're usually higher. You've actually, you've done the hard statistics of showing that that's a, depending, like, if it's a statistically significant result, you can get that just out of those raw ingredients that you've put in there now. That is pretty cool. Yeah. And so that's how science works. (laughs) Like that's (laughs) how, that's the, uh, you know, connection between, uh, this is kind of one of the standard ways that you do statistical analysis of data for scientific purposes, um, because it has this really nicely defined, these nicely defined properties that are all governed by a normal distribution that we understand really well. Um, and so you can do stuff like test your different hypotheses against each other and see if the data supports that there's different, uh, different phenomena that are affecting different populations that you're studying or that kind of thing. And that's when you learn and that's how science works. I like it. Um, before we close out the episode, I do want to close the loop on what I brought up at the beginning. Uh, we were talking about Mew and I said that this has been a difficult episode to, I'll say to record because my cat has been trying to walk on the space bar this whole time. Uh, until I figured out what he wanted. And he wanted my water uh, because he doesn't like drinking out of his own water dish. He only likes human cups. So I, I had to feed him some water while we were recording. And now I don't have any water that is devoid of cat saliva. So uh, what's your cat's name? My cat name is my cat's name is Robin. And mm. I, I think his full name is Robin Jake McFloof and then a bunch of last names. Oh, so you're one of those people who give overly ornate names to your pets? I uh, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus, but I, I will say I was not the one who named. <laughs> I, I didn't. I didn't. I, I wasn't the one who tacked on all of the names, but. Got it. Well, tell. Yeah. Tell Robin. Thank you for contributing to our discussion of statistics today. I think yeah. this was a lot better because of his efforts. I, I would I'm tell sure our that. listeners could tell. I would tell him that, but um, he's sleeping. I was going to say, he's busy somewhere else not caring about you. No, he's a cat. He's not a dog. Okay, well, um, you can play this episode back for him. He can learn how statistics works, and then he'll be a pretty smart cat. Linear Digressions is a Creative Commons endeavor which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to lineardigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at lineardigressions.com and katie at lineardigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at lindigressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.